Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. The way some people fear the future kind of reminds me of a little boy who had one line in his school play. He was supposed to go out there on stage and say, be not afraid, it, it is I. But an opening night with all the crowd filing in and the bright lights, he went out on stage and he's a bit nervous and he said, uh, don't be scared. No, he said, he, said uh, he was supposed to say, it is I, be not afraid. And he said, it's me and I'm scared. <laughs> and he blew it just like I blew it. But some people face the future that way with a bit of apprehension and fear, not knowing what this earth is going, what life on this earth is going to bring. And worse yet, what life in eternity is going to bring. Or if there will be any life in eternity. There's so much about life that is frail, changeable, whether it be our careers, what we thought would be a stable job suddenly vanishes. Whether it be our health, what we thought was good health can in one day deteriorate leave us bedridden or changed forever. Our family, which has always enjoyed perhaps the peace and security of a good relationship, can be shattered by many different things. The threat, the global threat of uh, war, although we enjoy a time of peace in America today, we have the constant threat of war. And just the insecurity of knowing that someone at any time could press the wrong button Burleson and all of Fort Worth and Dallas and a smoking heap of rubble. Leave some people living in insecurity. And I think this is expressed by someone who was actually a protester, uh, a nuclear protester, but I got this out of a Newsweek magazine. He said, with the nuclear arms race, mankind has been sentenced to death. I am driven by the fear, by fear, by the feeling that we are running out of time. You know, what this man says about his feelings are true is true of many people today who just fear for the future and what the future brings in this life. Christians also can be fearful of what the future brings. We're not in control of our circumstances. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. And even on a greater level, Christians can be fearful of the future, of eternity. But even more so, those without Christ or those who are somewhere in between wondering where they stand with God can be fearful. What does the future hold for me? For me? A preacher in California named Ray Stedman said it this way. He said, fear looms up, that uncertainty about the future, and we become fearful, timid people, afraid of what will happen next. We are walking on eggs all the time, afraid of being accepted or rejected, afraid of what people will do to us, and especially, finally, Afraid of what God is going to do to us. You know, everybody in this room, out of everybody in this room, no one will be here 100 years from now. We will all be in our eternal futures 100 years from now. Where will we be? Do we face it with fear? Do we as Christians have any reason to face it with more confidence than others? Do we have anything that is secure, anything that is certain about our future. I think the difference is 
Certainty comes when we know what lies ahead. Certainty comes when we can know the future. And I think with the Christian, the Bible teaches that we can certainly know to some degree what waits for us in eternity. And I think that's the idea that we will see in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 11. I remember when just about a year ago, or actually about eight months ago, uh, I was helping a friend of mine. We had an opportunity to meet. He's, he's from Africa. Some of you met him last Sunday if you came to the evening service. He's from, service. He's from Africa. He was estranged from his country for political reasons. And for him to return to Africa would mean certain death because of his political stand and the change of government there. And so he was trying to get asylum in these United States. He was a believer. and He's been going to the church in, in Cleburne. His name is Mark Otinga. Well, after about a year of red tape and paperwork and talking to lawyers and so forth, the date had arrived for his court trial before an immigration judge. And I remember how apprehensive we were because no one from this country in Africa had ever uh, received political asylum. It was almost a sure thing because uh, it's interesting, but the judge really doesn't have much to do with the decision. It's handed down from Washington. In other words, if the country, if America has a good relationship with this African country of Ghana, uh, then they don't want to upset that, so they won't grant asylum very easy. But if we have a bad relationship, as with Russia, well, then, you know, about anybody can get asylum. And no one from this country of Ghana had ever gotten asylum before in recent history. But we tried, and we did things uh, the way we best we could, and we prayed a lot. We went with the lawyer that day. And I remember sitting in that waiting room before we would enter the courtroom. We were nervous. We were going over what we would say and what Mark would say and what the lawyer would say and the best approach to take and very apprehensive because his future, perhaps his life, depends on that judge's decision. Then the lawyer for uh, one of the lawyers, the immigration lawyer for, uh, for the courtroom came out and was talking to our lawyer and I was barely listening, but all of a sudden she said, well, well didn't you get the letter? And our, our lawyer said, what letter? The, the letter, the, the State Department's decision. That from Washington, D.C. said, no, I didn't get any letter like that. So what? Well, we got a letter. It said uh, that relationships with Ghana are such that everyone who needs asylum can get asylum. Well, the decision's been determined already in Washington, D.C. When we heard that, going into the courtroom was nothing. We knew the outcome. We went in with confidence, answered the questions confidently, boldly, relaxed, at ease, with a smile on our face, and the outcome was totally different. When you know the future, you can feel confident, secure in this life because you know what's going to happen. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 14, we have some reasons to feel confident about our future. It has to do with what Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit have done in our salvation. Last week, we talked in verses 1 through 6 about what God has done in our salvation. Verses 1 through 6 tell us that he has chosen us before the foundation of the world. And according to his grace, he has, re he has chosen us in his son, Jesus Christ, to be adopted as his own son. And so we, God has adopted us as his son. But in verses 7 through 14, we're going to look at what the other persons in the Trinity have done in our salvation. First, Jesus Christ. And secondly, the Holy Spirit. And we will see how important this idea of being in Christ is. And what I think we will learn in these verses is that as Christians, we have a sure future in Christ. 
But it's only because we are in Christ. And as Christians, we can face it confidently, both in this life, what tomorrow will bring, and we can hold with confidence the belief that we will one day be in eternity with God. Let's read first of all verses 7 through 12, which tell us what Christ did in saving us. What did Jesus do as far as our salvation is concerned? Verses 7 through 12. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he pur purposed in himself, that in the dispensation or the administration of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. The very first thing that this passage tells us Jesus Christ did for our salvation is in verse 7. In him we have redemption. Jesus Christ redeemed us. From God's eternal plan, it was, it was ordained that we should be redeemed in Jesus Christ. What does it mean that we would be redeemed? Well, if you've ever used green stamps, you're familiar with the program they have set up. I've never done this, but I hear that they're called redemption centers. You take your stamps and you go to the redemption center and you buy uh, something with your stamps. And that's really what the word redemption means, or to redeem means simply to buy. It was a word that was used in, in ancient days, for instance, of buying a slave out of a market. And so you'd go and you'd buy a slave and you would take him as your own into your household. And that word was the word that was used, the Greek word that means redeem in the English. If you ever pawned anything in a pawn shop, and I've never done this either, you, you give it to the fellow and he gives you some money and a ticket, and you can go back at a later date and redeem your article by paying for it. But I heard of a story that I think illustrates this idea of redeem fairly well. About a little boy, he made a boat. And it was a, it was a beautiful little boat, and he put a lot of time and care into it, made a little sail on it. And he would go to the river and sail his boat in the river. And one day he was on, sailing it on the river, and a gust of wind took it out beyond his reach and into the current of the river. And it flowed downstream. The boy was really heartbroken because he thought he'd never see his little boat again. One day he was visiting a town downstream. And as he walked down the street, he saw in the pawn shop his little boat. So he walked into the door of the pawn shop and he explained to the owner that this was his boat and the river had carried away and he had lost it. He would, he would like to have it back. But the owner said, sorry, son, you have to pay for it. The little boy was sad, but he went home and he worked, earned the money, and at a later time he came back paid for his little boat, and as he walked out the door, he said, you are twice mine. I made you, and now I've bought you. And that's the idea of redeem. God has made us as his own, but yet we've drifted away. Let me use that word. Sin has separated us from God, and now he's redeemed us. He's bought us back, but he's bought us back with a price, a very high price. And that price is explained to us in verse 7 as well. We have redemption through his blood. The price that Jesus Christ paid for you and for me was the blood of his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
by blood, I think what is referred to here is the death of Jesus Christ and the blood that was spilt at his death. That was blood that was the price paid for you to buy you out of the slave market of sin. And I think that is the idea. If you want to look at First Peter again, that John read, First Peter chapter 1, verses 18, 19, 18 and 19. Which says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. God didn't insult our human dignity and value by paying merely silver and gold for us. How defacing that would be to someone made in the image of God. Instead, he gave the best thing he had, the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Boy, have you ever felt like you're not worth anything or that you're not important? All you need to do is think about what Jesus Christ is, what God has paid to have you back, the blood of his only son. Notice the verse 7 says that in him we have redemption. Now, this redemption is something it's not only promised for the future, but it's something that we can have now. We are actually brought out of sin today. And if you have Jesus Christ, if you are in him, you are redeemed. Today you enjoy that relationship with God as his son, brought out by his blood. But there's something else that comes along with the redemption. Verse 7 again. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. By redeeming us with his blood, Jesus Christ has also forgiven us our sins. This word forgiveness means literally to, to dismiss, to um, cancel, to pardon, to release from any obligation. It was, it's a word that you could use of a debt, that we would cancel your debt or release you from a debt. We forgive you. It would be used in the, old, in the ancient times in that way. It's illustrated, I think, very well by... Um, uh, the idea of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 in the Old Testament. Now, on the Day of Atonement, when the Jews would gather once a year for the forgiveness of sins for their whole nation, they would gather in Jerusalem at the temple. And there, as the people gathered together, the high priest, representing all of the people, would take two goats. On one goat, he would place his hand, signifying that he was transferring the sins of all the people on this one goat. And he would transfer, by putting his hand there, signify that, and then he would slay that goat. There was the blood that is required by forgiveness. But he would take the second goat, and he would also place his hand on the head of the second goat, showing again, that symbolizing the transfer of all the sins of the people on this one sacrificial goat. With this goat, however, they would drive it into the wilderness, away from the people, to be completely separate forever. And by driving that goat away into the wilderness forever, they were showing that sin was to be put away from the people forever. That's the beautiful picture of the Day of Atonement, showing that, as you, that you and I as Christians have God's forgiveness. We've been released from sins. The price has been paid. The death has been executed upon Jesus Christ. And when he hung on the cross, was he separated from God because of our sins? The Bible says. But Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus Christ was separated for a brief period of time because your sin and my sin was on him as our scapegoat, as our sacrificial animal. And because he took them away forever, we can be forgiven today. So we are redeemed through his blood and we have the forgiveness of sin. Now this is something, notice again, that we have today. You are forgiven today from all of your sins, past, present, and future in Christ. This morning we talked about the different attributes or perfections of God and one of them was omniscience, that God knows everything. God knew all of your sins that you committed before you were a Christian. And yet he chose to give his only son for you. God knew all the sons that, sins that you would commit as a Christian. And yet he chose to die for you and give you salvation. And we also learned today that God is immutable, that he doesn't change. He's not double-minded. And what he gives, he gives forever. So we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. And the Bible says that, that God will remember our sins no more and they will be cast into the depths of the sea. Someone has said that God put the no fishing sign over them. Forgiven forever. Notice how this comes to us. Verse 7. It's according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. What God has done in Jesus Christ began with, was done through, and resulted in grace. It began because of God's grace. He wanted to do it. He wanted to give this free, unmerited, unconditional gift to us. He did it through grace. The fact that Jesus Christ died was a display of God's grace. And the result of that was our salvation through his grace in our lives. But notice what the text says. And it's interesting. It's significant in verse 7. It is according to the riches of his grace. Not just according to his grace, but according to the riches of his grace. How rich God is in his grace. But notice something else. That little preposition says, according to his riches. The Bible could have said, out of his riches. But it says, according to his riches. And there's quite a difference. You see, let's say I was a millionaire. And I wanted to give a gift to this church. I was visiting the church and wanted to give a gift to this church. If I gave out of my riches, I could give $10, $15, $50, $100, and I would be giving out of my riches. But if I gave according to my riches, according to my riches, I could give $100,000 or a million dollars. That would be more according to my riches. When God saved us by his grace, he gave, it, he gave us our redemption and the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. All the immeasurableness of his goodness, grace, was poured out on us in Jesus Christ. And he did this, it says in verse 8, he made it abound towards us, the idea of overflow towards us in all wisdom and prudence. God in his wisdom and prudence allowed this to happen. While men debated back and forth in those days, you know, back in the ancient days, philosophy, was a very important thing, and philosophers were looked up to as having all the answers. And while they debated back and forth how man could gain salvation or approval with God, God had already ordained before those philosophers, philosophers were born that Jesus Christ would die and that he would redeem some for himself. And God, in his infinite, timeless wisdom, decided 
that Christ would have to lay his life down for our salvation. What did Jesus Christ do in saving us? He redeemed us. He bought us out from sin, forgave those sins. We did this by his grace, his marvelous grace. There's something else he did, something else that God did through Christ, and that's in verses 9 through 10. He revealed his mysterious will to us through Christ. Verses 9 through 10, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purchased, purposed in himself. God, through Christ, has made known his will to us. In the Old Testament, the Bible teaches that the authors didn't always understand the things that they spoke and wrote. And surely there was some mystery in the fact that Jesus Christ would come as a gracious and gentle Savior and restore all things in himself. They did expect a Messiah who would come in glory and reign and and reign over the whole world in power and authority, but they really didn't grasp this idea of a gentle Savior who would have to die on the cross, a stumbling block to the Jews to think that their Messiah would have to die. But we find a mystery in Christ, the mysterious will of God revealed. A mystery in the Bible is something that has never been revealed beforehand. And it's in Christ we find out that he's bringing all things together. Now, verse 10, when he says that he's bringing all things together in Christ, I think one of the applications, one of the primary things in the author's mind is the fact that in Jesus Christ, all peoples will be brought together. Whereas before, the Messiah was only seen as a Messiah for Israel, for the Jews only. It was a mystery that in Christ, Gentiles would be allowed to be in this body called the church. And that's why there was such a big commotion in the book of Acts when Gentiles started getting saved. What do we do with them? (laughs) They didn't know what to do. They'd never heard of such a thing. Some were resentful. Some were surprised. Some insisted that they become Jews and be circumcised and everything like a Jew. But the final decision was, no, this is part of God's plan. Let them come in. This was a mystery that all would be included together in one body. That's an idea that we'll pick up in chapter 2 when we talk about God and his one body it says he broke down the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile to make them both one. It's a mystery that God's grace would be so great. But it finds its completion in its fullest form in verse 10 in the dispensation of the fullness of times. Boy, that's a mouthful. I think the fullness of times is referring to the time, we could literally say the completion of time, or when things have reached their full completion, their final end. I think this looks down, you turn it uh, down the timeline to the kingdom, the millennial reign of Christ in the kingdom. The administration of the fullness of time speaks of Christ's management or rule over that kingdom. We speak of the Nixon administration, the Carter administration, the Reagan administration. Well, Christ's administration is going to be over the millennial period. And it's in that management or administration at the end time, the fullness of times. He's going to gather together everything, not only Jew and Gentile, but every people and tribe and nation and tongue, the book of Revelation, on the whole earth, every, uh, everything in heaven and earth will be reconciled to God once more. But it will be again in Christ. In Christ. So God will also, besides redeeming us in Christ, also reveal his mysterious will through Christ that we will be united with others in him, in this wonderful thing called the church. But there's something else that Jesus Christ has done in our salvation. He's given us something. 
Given us something very important. Verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance. Being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Jesus gave us an inheritance. In him. Again, because we are in Christ. We have received an inheritance. Because we are sons of God, we, are, we have received an inheritance as rightfully due to sons. What, what does inheritance mean? Well, inheritance is simply a gift that we receive because of our family relationship. Someone you know, you're, let's say you would have a father or mother die, your parents were to die, they leave you an inheritance because you belong to that family. You don't work for it. It's not because of what you do or what you earn, but it's because of who you are. Who are we? Verse 5. We are adopted as sons by Jesus Christ. We are sons of God. And because we are sons, we have a legal inheritance that comes to us. I think it points to the future, something that we will receive. And whereas in this life, we can be cheated out of our inheritance, you know, it reminds me of uh, the, the, all the shenanigans that went on with Howard Hughes when he died and every, how everybody filed for part of his inheritance. Oh, I'm a long-lost second, third, fourth cousin, you know. And uh, there were so many legal entanglements. And I'm sure someone somewhere got cheated out of their legal inheritance. And you and I may some way be cheated out of our legal inheritance in this world, but the Bible says we have an inheritance that waits for us in the future. We will see that we cannot be cheated out of it. And the reason we can't be cheated out of it, really two reasons. One is because of the sovereignty of God, and the other is because of the work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit in a minute, but look at the sovereignty of God at work here in verse 11. We have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. How can we know for certain that we have a future, that we have an eternity, that we have an inheritance? It's been predestined. It's been determined beforehand. It's part of God's eternal purpose and plan that you would have an, an inheritance. And if it's part of God's eternal purpose and plan, what in time and eternity today can take that or steal that from you? Nothing. See, we as Christians can be confident and face the future because we know we have one. It's guaranteed by God's sovereign plan. It was determined beforehand. And it will be brought to fruition. We will receive what has been prom promised us. We will receive the inheritance. And that inheritance is based on God's sovereignty. It says, according to the counsel of his will. Because God wanted to give it to us, we receive it. And the end of that in verse 12 is that we who trust in Christ will glorify God. Why does God secure an inheritance for us? Because he knows that in in eternity future, you will glorify him by what you receive as an inheritance. See, God does this and does, as he does everything for his glory. For his glory. But there's just another reason why our inheritance is secure for us in the future. Not only has it been sovereignly planned by God, determined beforehand by him, but the work of the Holy Spirit secures it for us. That is the idea of verses 13 through 14. So you see, we see the whole Trinity at work, beginning at the beginning of the passage, 
Blessed be the God, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In verse 3, God is at work in our salvation. And then, the, and then Jesus Christ redeems us and forgives us. Now what does the Holy Spirit do? Verses 13 and 14. In him you also trusted, that is in Christ, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. What did the Holy Spirit do in saving us? Verse 13. In whom also you trusted after you heard the word of truth, that is the gospel, excuse me, as defined here, the gospel of your salvation, the word of truth, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit sealed you when you believed in Christ as your Savior. The Spirit sealed you. Now, what does that mean? The idea of seal was used in business transactions, different things in ancient times, simply to mean Something was guaranteed. There was a seal placed on something so that that seal could not be broken. It showed that the transaction was finished. It showed ownership, that it belonged to a certain person. And it showed also security, but nothing could ever take it away. We can compare it today with the idea of branding cattle, for instance. I know a fellow who branded his cattle. Cattle were stolen. And almost uh, six, a long time later, almost a year later, he recovered his cattle. Sheriff took him to identify him, and there was his brand. They had tried to monkey with it, change it a little bit, but he could see that that was his brand that identified the cattle as his own and secured them for him at that particular time. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He, he seals us. He marks us. Not only does he mark us, but what is the seal? The seal is the Spirit. Says we're sealed with the Spirit, not just by the Spirit, but with the Spirit. So the seal that God places upon you and I as we trust in Christ is His Holy Spirit. What happens when we believe? The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. And that is the seal of God. So that we are proved to be His. He is our owner. It shows the transaction to be complete. And it shows that He has secured what is His to a future date, a future time. Notice when the sealing takes place in verse 13. It says, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed. Having believed. Now, I think the old King James says, after you believe, which is probably not the best translation. It's a participle, and the participle can mean something happens at the same time of. Like um, snoring, I went to sleep. That happens at the same time. Verb and participle. Snoring, participle, verb. I went to sleep. Well, you were sealed having believed. Or when you believed, you were sealed. would be the simplest translation. The sealing of the Holy Spirit took place when you believed. The indwelling of the Spirit took place when we believed. It's not something that happened later. Every Christian has the seal of the Spirit. The Spirit of God inside of him or her. It happens at the time of regeneration, of new birth. And that's, in fact, how new birth is possible even because of the Spirit of God. There are some who tell you that the Holy Spirit comes later in salvation, but that is not what the Bible says. We are sealed upon belief. 
And notice the importance of this seal, verse 14. Not only does the Holy Spirit seal us, but he guarantees our inheritance. He guarantees our inheritance, verse 14. This seal, referred to as who, is the guarantee of our inheritance. By placing his Holy Spirit upon us, God guarantees that we'll have what was promised to us. And that is a wonderful assurance. The word guarantee literally means down payment, security deposit, uh, guarantee, or promise. If we are to rent a home and we put a deposit down on it, that holds it for us until we move in. The owner understands that this is a security deposit. It guarantees. When we go to buy a car, we give a man earnest money to show him that we're serious and that we will follow through later with what we've promised. We give him perhaps a $100 deposit. When God placed his spirit in us, it was a foretaste, a guarantee, a down payment of everything that we would receive in the future. And if you at all have enjoyed the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life, his work of grace in your life, his assurance and his comfort and his power, you have ever felt that in your own life, that's just a little foretaste, but a sure promise of what you'll have in the future. I've heard that um, those who are, are I heard, I've heard that when truck drivers drive a truck, that sometimes these big trucks are sealed with a seal and that they cannot be opened anytime in route, but only at the destination by the people for whom, to whom the goods were due. And if this seal is open any time in route, that, that truck driver would be fired, assuming that he opened it and tampered with the goods. And that is the idea of the seal here. God has placed a seal upon us, and there is nothing that can tamper with that. Nothing that can break that until we receive the redemption and the inheritance that was promised to us. And that's exactly what he says in verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until... Notice that little word, it's important, until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. Until shows us that it's in the future. Now, there's something confusing here because verse 14 talks about redemption as being in the future, and uh, verse 7 talked about it as something that we have, or which is right, is redemption something we have now or something that we'll have in the future? Well, it's both. Salvation has different aspects to it. We were saved. We are being saved today in the, in the sense that God is delivering us from sin, and we will be ultimately saved or delivered from sin altogether in its very presence. Redemption is the same idea. God bought us out by paying the price for us. He gave us a down payment, but there's one day when he's going to come back and he's going to take us as his own in a final and future uh, complete total redemption and will be once and for all his, separated to him forever. And this guarantee is the guarantee of exactly that, that we will receive forever what he has promised to us today by sealing us in the Holy Spirit. And so I believe the Bible teaches that we cannot lose our inheritance. But we cannot lose our inheritance. And what this means is that we cannot lose our salvation. Boy, here's another controversial topic, isn't it? Because I know there's people that believe differently, and I respect views like that. I respect anybody that bases their views on the Bible. But I really think that if we're to be faithful to this passage, 
The Bible would be teaching that we cannot lose our salvation. We cannot lose our inheritance. Because it depends on what God has already done in his predestining work. And it depends upon the seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. If you would, just turn to Romans chapter 8 for a second with me. I think there's a passage in Romans chapter 8 that shows us that uh, everybody who God has so predestined to be his will indeed arrive at the other end and receive the inheritance. You might say that our inheritance is to be like Jesus Christ, to be in a glorified body, to live with him forever in glory. And that's perhaps what we see in Romans chapter 8. Look at verse uh, 29. For whom he foreknew, there's the idea of preordaining, knowing beforehand, decreeing it beforehand. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. Notice this in verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Call has to do with actually our response, God's invitation to salvation and our response. And these he also justified. Those who respond are justified. And whom he justified or declares righteous or saves, he also glorifies. Now you've got the whole process from God's work before time to God's work after time and then in between time. He predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. But notice what it says. Whom he predestined, he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. How many does he lose? None of them. Whoever he predestined, he also glorified. God's work determined beforehand in eternity past will also guarantee our salvation in the future. And that should be a comforting thought to us. That we, by God's grace, not because of what we have done, but in his sovereign, mysterious will, has decided that we would be saved. And yet we exercise our free will in believing, but we find out that he really has predestined it, as we talked about last week. That's confusing. It's a mystery. and We can't explain it fully like we wish we could. But it's in the Bible. And that because it's based in eternity past in the will of God, that it can't be snatched from us. We were elected by God. We don't need to be re-elected. We were born again. We don't need to be born again and again and again. He gave us eternal life, not periodic life or sporadic life. And that is our possession. It depends on God's power and on his promise. Take, for instance, the Old Testament example. You know the story of uh, Noah and his ark. It's an interesting passage uh, when we when we look at Genesis chapter uh, 6 and 7, what happened in the story of the flood. You don't need to turn there, but I want to read one verse to you. You know the story. All the animals were got together, and uh, Noah preaches righteousness, and everybody refuses the message, and Noah and his family alone are saved, delivered in the ark. For when the time came for the rain and the flood, it says that the animals went into the ark, Two by two, chapter 7, verse 15. And all flesh in which is the breath of life. So that those who entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The Lord sealed him in. That's an interesting picture. That God let Noah and the animals go in the ark and then God shut them in. 
The word literally means sealed. God sealed him in the ark. It was God's work ultimately that saved Noah. He didn't just nail a peg on the outside of the ark. He said, no, it's going to rain 40 days and 40 nights. It's going to get pretty rough at that. You hold on real tight. Hope you make it. Good luck. Nope. Put him in the ark. Sealed the ark. And Noah's salvation from the flood was as secure as the ark itself. Your salvation, your future inheritance, all depends on whether you are in Christ or not. Christ is your heart. God has sealed you in his body with his Holy Spirit. And your salvation depends on God's power to keep his promise and God's sealing work until that day of redemption. And it's a wonderful, blessed thought in the scripture. And we could preach a whole series of messages on the idea of salvation, whether it can be lost or not. As I said, I respect your view, but I have to preach mine. And there is the objection, well, if we can't lose our salvation, then you can go out, then that just means you can go out and do anything you want. Well, I would say, you don't understand the grace of God. If you understand the grace of God, how he saved you and would keep you and loves you that much, you won't do what you want, you'll do what he wants. You'll be so busy trying to please him out of gratitude that you won't be concerned with your own desire. He makes us new creatures, and with being a new creature comes a new desire to do what he wants us to do. That's like saying, well, just because I have Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance that I can go out and chew on razor blades and play in the middle of I-35 and drink hydrochloric acid. I wouldn't do that because it would damage my, it would hurt me. For a Christian, this sin would also hurt his fellowship with God, and God would chasten that person. But the grace of God says that we didn't earn what we had, and we only have it because he wanted to, and I don't understand it, and I'm going to worship him and serve him with my life, and I'm not going to do what I want to do anymore. That's the grace of God. Boy, I wish I could speak a whole message on that. So in this passage, starting in verse 3, we see the three persons of the Trinity working in our salvation. God chooses us. Christ redeems us. The Holy Spirit seals us. And it's final. Sealed to the day of redemption. And as Christians, we can be sure of what we have in the future. And if we can be sure of what we have in the future, we can face what we have to go through today. It's kind of like graduation, you know, for those of you who have gone through school and can, or can remember that. Everything was bearable if you knew you were going to graduate someday. All the midnight oil, all the all-nighters, all the teachers' injustices were bearable if you knew you were going to graduate someday. You can take anything at work if you know that one day you're going to retire. If you know that you have a secure inheritance, heaven, all the riches of God, we can go through anything here on earth. I have a, a fellow I know, very worried. He worries about almost everything. He's a believer, so one day I got, I just had to have some strong words with him. And, well, he, see, he would worry, he, he would go to work and he would have to work around a little bit of water on the floor and he'd worry that, worry that standing in the water he would get electrocuted. And then driving to work, he, he worried so much about the traffic that he would get in an accident and get killed or something. So finally I said to him, well, okay, let's say that you are driving to work and you get in an accident and you die. What happens to you? He says, I go to heaven. I said, well, that's great. What are you worried about? 
Isn't that true? But there's really nothing that can hurt us in this life if we have that inheritance in the future. We may have those who persecute us, those who hate us, those who abuse us, those who use us, those who beat us. We may have the fiery darts of the devil. We may approach the finish line uh, limping, crawling on our hands. But when we cross over, God breathes into us that new breath of resurrection life. And we're glorified forever. And we gain the inheritance of the riches of the fullness of his glory and grace forever. And, we, and he wipes away every memory of tears and sorrow. And it didn't matter, did it? It didn't matter. So you can put up with your boss a little longer. You can put up with your schooling a little bit longer. You can put up with those people in your life. You have a future inheritance in heaven, and the devils of hell can't shake it from you. There's nothing to be afraid of in this life. There's nothing to be afraid of in the future. If you're in Christ. But if you have some doubts about whether you're in Christ or not, or where your standing is in relationship to him, then you have good reason, perhaps, to fear or to feel insecure, in all honesty. Security only comes from being in Christ. And the way we get in Christ is to believe in him as our Savior. By an act of our own free will, we choose him as our Savior. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.